Good morning. You may have heard the saying, there is no such thing as bad publicity. There is no such thing as bad publicity. We're not quite sure who first said that line, but it's an idea that has shown up in the past. Oh, in uh, Oscar Wilde, in his novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, he says it in a much more witty Victorian manner. And if I could do a British accent, this is where I would do it, but I can't, so... He says this, The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. And I guess for a small slice of the population, this is true. If you are famous simply because you're famous and you're famous for being famous, and you want to stay famous, then there is no such thing as bad publicity. All publicity is good publicity. Anytime you can get your name out there, that's a good thing. There's no such thing as bad publicity. You might, even though we're kind of talking about celebrities here, you might have Facebook friends where this is true. You look at their Facebook feed, and you go, ah, that's an interesting thing to post. That's an interesting picture of the boil you have on your leg? (laughs) Because some people on their Facebook page seem to think that all publicity is good publicity, any publicity. Just get my name out there. But for most of us, I think we know, if you think of your workplace, if you think of our church, if you think of a school, that there is such a thing as bad publicity. Think of your workplace and say, would any publicity, publicity be good publicity? And you go, no. There are some things that are internal that should stay internal. There are some issues that should kind of be dealt with in-house. Indeed, not all publicity is good publicity. There is such a thing as bad publicity. But let me tweak that phrase a little bit and give you a thought question for the day. Are you ready? You don't look ready. Are you ready? Thought question for the day. Is this statement true? There is no such thing as bad peace. There is no such thing as bad peace. I'm going to give you a few minutes to think about that. Let me tell you where we're heading. Some sermons end with a spirit of, here's what you're supposed to do this week. This is not one of those sermons. This is a sermon that's going to attempt to get you to think differently, to get you to have a different perspective on the world and the challenges of peacemaking. And therefore, today's sermon is kind of like trying to get an ocean liner to turn around. It's going to take time, and it's going to take space, and we're only going to do it little by little. So this sermon is hoping to push you to think more wisely, more Christianly, about the challenges of peacemaking. We're going to talk about John Lennon, Christianity in China, baking cakes, and a woman named Authorine Lucy all with the goal of ending this time together with you saying, I'm going to try to change my mind a little bit about peacemaking. It takes a long time to get an ocean liner to turn, but you've got to start the turn if you're going to make the turn. And so hopefully by the end of today's chat, you will be ready and willing to start the turn if you're not already in the turn. Matthew 5, 9 famously says, these are words of Jesus, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This little aphorism or saying is couched in a list of saying that some of you are familiar with called the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the pure in heart, 
for they shall see God, and on and on. One of the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers are people who, wait for it, make peace. Now, I spent most of my study time to come up with that, so I have very little after that, so no, just kidding. People who are peacemakers make peace. And we've already seen this. We already saw this. Remember with Jeremiah? You seek the peace. Paul in Ephesians says you put on the shoes of the readiness of the gospel. Peacemaking is an action. Peace is an action. Blessed are the peacemakers. There is no such thing as a bad peace is no truer than there is no such thing as bad publicity. There is such a thing as bad peace. Or at least of lesser peace, or of false peace, or as we will hear later, obnoxious peace. How is this possible? Let's make a cake. Imagine that you bake a cake and you make it for a friend. You bring this cake into your friend and your friend who is super spiritual says to you, blessed are the cake makers. Amen. (laughs) Blessed are the cake makers. And you are called blessed by your friend because you made a cake. You read the recipe, you bought the supplies, you did the mixing, you did the measuring, you did the baking, you did the cooling, you did the icing. You did it. You made a cake. You are a cake maker. But let's imagine that you are in high school, the high school where I teach. And you bring in this cake in the morning for you and your friends to eat at lunch. Now you have a cake. You have a four-inch wide locker. And you have four hours until lunch. It's a dilemma. What do you do? Well, you come into my classroom and say, can I keep this with you until lunchtime? And I, in spite of all of my other duties at the school, suddenly become a cake keeper. I am told, asked, I am commissioned to keep the cake. This may involve me answering questions about the cake. It may be me defending the cake from other hungry students. I stop people from stealing the cake. I am the cake keeper. And I play an important role. I am not disparaging the cake keeper. You need cake keepers in that situation. There's nothing wrong with the cake keeper. What's wrong is when, if I were to think that as the cake keeper, I was a cake maker. See, the problem comes when you start confusing cake making with cake keeping. Imagine later in that day, I was walking through the cafeteria, and I walked by the group of girls eating the cake, and I stop and I go, I made that cake. We have a problem there. There would either be confusion behind what I had really done, or I was trying to be deceptive in what I was actually, uh, my part was actually in the process. Well, as you surely guessed by now, in the same way that cake making and cake keeping are not the same, peace making and peace keeping are not the same. 
Again, I am not disparaging against peacekeeping. There is a place for peacekeeping. Let me give you another scenario. You have a dinner party, you have a large family. Amongst the people in this large family, there are two in particular that do not get along well, and they're both going to be there. You end up with a goal of the evening, and that is peacekeeping. You strategize where they're going to sit. You assign some other family member to make sure that the other two stay apart from each other. You think through conversation topics that will not create conflict between these two people. And let's say that the dinner party ends, everyone had a good time, there was no drama. And if you were to say, whew, that was a great party, those two family members didn't even have to talk to each other, I have made peace. At that point, we'd have to say, well, well no, you actually, you, you kept the peace, but you didn't actually make peace. Well, I don't think any of us would have confused cake making and cake keeping. And probably in that scenario, most of you wouldn't have thought that you had made peace between those two people. But our culture, our society, is pushing hard against Christians in a way that I think is causing us to confuse peacekeeping with peacemaking. And the confusion becomes more dangerous as the stakes of peace get higher and the issues become more complicated. So this morning, I want to suggest two broad areas where Christians in particular seem to be confusing peacemaking with peacekeeping. And it causes us to often think we have made peace in areas where we've only kept the peace. But oftentimes, the way we've, what we've had to do to keep that peace has been to sacrifice something that is so steep that we've lost more than we gained in keeping the peace. Let me say that differently. I want to discuss two broad areas in which we as Christians think we make peace, when in reality we have simply kept the peace, but we've kept the peace at such a great price that we've simply created a false kind of peace. The first area is a cultural one. If you visit www.johnlennon.com, the official website of John Lennon, the late John Lennon, you will find yourself looking at a picture of John Lennon sitting at his iconic white piano. You will also see the opportunity to purchase a t-shirt that has the words in bold print, war is over. And then in small print under it, it says, if you want it. This t-shirt is available in more than 100 languages. The slogan, by the way, War is Over If You Want It, was used by Lenin as early as 1968. It's been used since then by Yoko Ono, his wife, in sort of this international peace campaign. Even to this day, 36 years after Lenin's assassination, 36 years this week, actually, since Lenin's assassination. How might this peace be accomplished? Well, I think the website splash page there invites us to think that it's accomplished by the words of the song written at this famous piano. The song is called Imagine. And it goes something like this. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Sky. 
Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion, too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Lenin's desire for peace is not unique to him. We've talked over the last several weeks about the desire that we have for peace, that we all have for peace. But I want to focus on a central idea that shows up in two of the verses of this song. Imagine there was no heaven. Imagine there was no hell. Imagine there was no religion. Then, the song says, then we might have peace. The central thesis of the song seems to be that peace will only be achieved by the elimination of religion, which I assume can only, I can only assume includes Christianity. If we didn't have religion, then wouldn't we just all get along? Just a quick look at the news almost every day, including today. We see strife and violence in the name of religion. So we're not surprised at this thesis of the song. This is not new, and Christianity has not been innocent in the history of religious violence. And the solution to the violence of, in the world is especially complex, especially because in some parts of the world, long histories of conflict are as much ethnic and racial as they are religious. So there's all kinds of like interweaving complexities there. But over the last few weeks, we did talk about the disposition of peace that we as Christians are to have. Remember our old friend Jeremiah? When you had the Hebrew people exiled to the Babylonian land amongst people that were not ethnically like them, people that were not spiritually like them, people that were not religiously like them, Jeremiah's advice was, seek the peace of the city. Their peace is your peace. Your peace is their peace. Seek the shalom of the community in which you have been placed. So the Bible clearly gives us instructions to help us be peacemakers in this complex environment. But this is not the kind of peacemaking that the song Imagine is imagining. The song suggests that we need to let go of our religious beliefs so that we can all just get along. This idea is not a new one either. Governments have tried this for years. Let's, let's legislate that no one can have a religion. However, these countries experience a stunningly small amount of additional peace. In the last century, enlightenment came to Western culture in particular, and philosophers and modernists came up with what's called the secularization theory, which basically says this. Religion is a part of the superstitious past of humanity, and that if you have enough technology and enough science and enough advancement, that people will sort of grow out of this immature, childlike belief in another world, in a, in a god. We'll sort, of, we'll sort of advance our way out of religion. And then we can all be at peace. 
History has not proven this to be true either. Growing economies, growing technology, growing scientifically does not eliminate religion, particularly Christianity. China, for example, is developing rapidly, we know, economically and technologically. And by the year 2025, the number of Christians is expected to grow from the 58 million of today to 160 million. So the growth of Christianity is expected to track with the growth of technology and development. It seems that smarter phones and better dishwashers don't fulfill people's desire for a God in their lives. Huh. How about that? Our culture, America, 2016. The last 15 or 20 years, our culture has been imagining their own way of peace with no religion. I'll call it the privatization of religion. Here's how we're going to make no religion happen in America. Stop talking about it. You can be religious when you want to be religious as long as it's not in school or in the workplace or in a public sector or in political conversation. Just keep religion to yourself and then we'll all get along. It's a style of no religion, right? Just keep it in your homes. It's going to be your own thing. I think this is an excellent example of peacekeeping being confused with peacemaking. And we as Christians cannot accept the idea that being silent makes peace with the world. We cannot accept the idea that the best way to navigate a diverse culture, religiously and otherwise, is to be silent about our Christian faith. The culture will say, no, no, you being silent is making peace. And we need to say, no, that's just making a nice dinner party. It's just making a nice dinner party. And then we all walk away and nothing has been accomplished in the realm of peace. We cannot give up truth in the name of so-called peace. Peace without truth is a bad peace. The truth must be spoken. The truth of Christ, of salvation, must be told. Our old friend Jeremiah again warns the priests and the prophets of his time He warns them against saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And if Christians are silent in their culture, that's what they're declaring. And we must be careful that by our silence, we do not imply that people are at peace with God. But we all kind of do it. We're sort of at a dinner conversation or at a workplace conversation. We're sitting at the lunch table and somebody says something like, yeah, I'm not really really much for that God thing. I sort of have my own religion. I've kind of brought together some of the things I really believe in and, and I believe in a God and it's kind of my own thing. And we go, this is our response a lot of times. Huh. Right? Because we're like, I'm not even going there. That's what we, we as Christians will say, I'm not even going there. And Jeremiah would say, what you're saying to them is peace. And Jeremiah says, do not tell them they have peace when there is no peace. Our silence communicates something. Will this create conflict? Maybe. 
Hopefully it'll create conversation if you're sharing the truth in love as the Bible encourages us. Certainly we don't share it with violence. But we must be sharing it. The attempt of our culture to privatize Christianity under the banner of peace is mere peacekeeping. And we must not slip into the belief that it's peacemaking. So the first kind of bad peace Peace without truth is a bad peace. Second, peace without justice or without righteousness is a bad peace. Or as the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. calls it, an obnoxious peace. That's a phrase from a sermon presented by Dr. King on March 18, 1956, at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, in a sermon appropriately entitled, When Peace Becomes Obnoxious. Here's the context. A few days before the sermon, a young lady named Authorine Lucy was accepted by federal court order as the first African-American student in the history of the University of Alabama. Within a couple of days of her arriving on campus, some outsiders as well as some students rose up, began threatening her, crosses were burned, eggs and bricks were thrown, mobs eventually numbering up to 2,000 would surround the building where she was in class to greet her on the way out, surrounding the car that was escorting her from class to class until finally the president of the board of the University of Alabama the president and the board, asked Authorine to leave for her own safety and the safety of the university. The next day after Authorine was dismissed, the paper came out with this headline, Things are quiet in Tuscaloosa today. There is peace on the campus of the University of Alabama. And now some of the words from Dr. King's sermon. He says this, yes, things are quiet in Tuscaloosa. Yes, there was peace on the campus, but it was a peace at a great price. It was a peace that has been purchased at the price of allowing mobocracy to reign supreme over democracy. It was a peace that has been purchased at the price of capitulating to the forces of darkness. It's the type of peace that all men of goodwill hate. It is the type of peace that is obnoxious. It is the type of peace that stinks in the nostrils of the Almighty God. Later in the sermon, Dr. King continues. It is a very profound passage which has often been misunderstood. Jesus says this. Think not that I have come to bring peace. I come not to bring peace, but a sword. Certainly, Jesus is not saying that he comes not to bring peace in the higher sense. What Jesus is saying is this. I come not to bring the peace of escapism. This peace that fails to confront the real issues of life. The peace that makes for stagnant complacency. Jesus then says, I come to bring a sword, not a physical sword. Whenever I come, a conflict 
is precipitated, but it is between the old and the new, between justice and injustice, between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. Jesus says, I come to declare war over injustice. I come to declare war on evil. Peace is not merely the absence of some negative force, war, tension, confusion, but it is the presence of some positive force, justice, goodwill, and the power of the kingdom of God. I think Dr. King's words show us another way in which simple peacekeeping can be confused with peacemaking. When peace is achieved without justice, without righteousness, it is not a true peace. Peace that is achieved only by ignoring the injustices placed upon others, peace that is achieved by subjugating or rejecting other people, peace that is achieved by cushioning ourselves in our own economic or social or religious status so that we can operate outside the realm of those who seem to be in conflict, these things are not peacemaking. They are certainly not bringing about shalom. I am not the first one to make these connections. Dr. King was not the first one to make these connections. Way back in the Old Testament, the prophets in particular would weave a web between justice and righteousness, between truth and peace, between justice and peace, between truth and righteousness. This complex array of language shows that it's very difficult to have one without the other. They're not really able to be separated. Justice, righteousness, truth, and peace are all two sides of the same coin. Well, if a coin had four sides. (laughs) If you had a square coin. Psalm 85.10 says this, Unfailing love and truth have met together. Righteousness or justice and peace have kissed. Isaiah says, and this righteousness will bring peace. It will bring quietness and confidence forever. And Jeremiah says, behold, I will bring to Jerusalem health and healing, and I will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. There is absolutely such a thing as bad peace. It is one that acts like you can sacrifice truth or you can sacrifice justice or you can sacrifice righteousness in order to achieve that peace. Even General Douglas MacArthur agrees. He said this, a truce just says you don't shoot for a while. Peace comes when the truth is known and the issue is settled and the parties embrace each other. We must be thoughtful Christians who are willing to stand up for what is true and what is just as we stand up for peace. We must not be deceived into thinking that a simple truce is actual peacemaking. How do we slip into that mindset? Well, I think some of us have a weary soul. 
where we're so tired of dealing with some of the idiocies of our culture and some of the difficulties of our world that we just can't seem to energize ourselves to pursue true peace. So we just say, I'll take the peacekeeping. I'll take the quiet dinner party instead of trying to bring healing to my family. And I understand that. We get weary with it. But we must not give up on it. We continue to seek the peace. We re-energize ourselves with prayer and fellowship, with learning from Scripture, and we dive back in. There are certainly some Christians who have an, un- have an intentionally uninformed soul. We simply reject the complexity of an issue, and we find ourselves saying things like, well, if that's how they want to do, if that's how those people are, if that's how those people are, well, that's them. Let them be. I'll just sort of close myself off to those issues, and we'll put on that coat that we saw the very first week we talked about peace. We'll cushion ourselves from it, let them be them, we'll be us, and I'll just sort of intentionally stay uninformed, and then I can think everything's okay. We opt for a lesser peace. And then sometimes we get a hardened soul, we get snarky, we get angry. We kind of get bitter about the issues of peace in our culture. And that's a place where we sometimes reach where we need to repent and pray and ask for God to soften our hearts so that we can understand the complexities of people that maybe aren't like ourselves, economically or racially or culturally. And we need to pray for a soft heart and an understanding. But whether we have weary souls or uninformed souls or hardened souls, God's charge to us, God's blessing to us, is for those who do the hard work of peacemaking. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. We begin to reflect the work God did in making peace with us. A peacemaking heart is the heart of God. Because when we were at war with him, He reached out to us in peace. He made peace with us through the cross. He is the ultimate peacemaker, and if we're going to be his children, we must be peacemakers as well. Peace has been made with us, and thus we are commissioned, and even on a mission, to make true peace. Peace with truth, peace with justice, peace with righteousness with others. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a big topic. It's a big concept. Peacemaking is so difficult in our world and the confusion that even we as Christians feel about it often does not help. Lord, I ask that you would give us clarity on ways that we can make peace, starting with the smallest relationships and widening out to our city and to our culture, to our workplaces, to our world. Lord, we want to have hearts of people who are willing to keep the peace when needed, but certainly, Lord, we want to be people who make peace, and we certainly don't want to confuse the two. And certainly, Lord, we praise you for being the model of peacemaking. You have made peace with us. Give us hearts for peacemaking with others. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.